If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be. It's pretty much right in the center of your Bible. I'll give you a few moments to find that. We are talking about the heralds, and the first one that we're going to look at is Isaiah. Isaiah heralds the coming, the advent of Jesus, and we're going to talk about what Isaiah has to say, what God has to say through Isaiah as a herald for what is to come in this Christmas season today. Uh, one of the shows that I, I think I've made no uh, made it no secret that I enjoy is The Office. Raise your, raise your hand if you're a big The Office fan. See, I'm not alone. There's a lot of things there, right? Wow. Um, the Office is about a dysfunctional office, which I think is what makes it funny, and uh, really dumb boss Michael Scott, which is why it's relatable because people have dumb bosses and. Um, Anyway, it's a funny show. It's about a dysfunctional office. One of the episodes is it shows a, a garden party, and one of the characters is hosting this garden party. His name is Dwight, Dwight Schrute at his farm. He's hosting this dinner or this garden party, and um, he takes it very seriously because he wants to impress his coworkers and their families. <clears throat> Dwight's one of the salesmen at the company called Dunder Mifflin, and he's quirky and extremely unusual and, and very strange. Uh, Jim is his arch nemesis, if you've never seen The Office. Uh, Jim is Dwight's arch nemesis. He's always pranking Dwight, and they kind of got this comedic back and forth that's always happening. Well, in this episode about, uh, Jim, or about Dwight ho hosting this garden party, Jim got him to purchase a fake garden party hosting book that Jim wrote as a prank, and he tricks him into doing really silly made-up things as the host of the garden party, including loudly heralding his guests. So... Let's see it. Mr. Chapter 2. Announcing guests as they enter is the height of the norm. The more volume displayed, the more honor is bestowed upon every man. Pamela and Pippi <laughs> so it was between that and a professional wrestling illustration, so I went with that. It's a funny video, but it, it, it kind of puts forward this idea of heralding. And um, that's what Dwight is doing in that video. He's heralding his guests and announcing their arrival. One of the things that Jim says that I think is a little bit pertinent to what we're talking about this morning, he says, the more volume is displayed, the more honor is bestowed. When we talk about the Bible heralding Jesus's arrival, I just want you to understand something. The Bible communicates and heralds the arrival of Jesus extremely loudly. Extremely loudly is the heralding. And extremely loud is the honor of Jesus that comes when the Gospels begin. A heralder, very simply, if that's not a word that you use a lot, I don't imagine it probably is, it just is a messenger. And typically a herald is a messenger of good news or events that are to come. It's a, a herald shows up and says, something's about to happen. Pay attention. Something's about to happen. Which is why when we sing that song, Hark, the herald angels sing, you're thinking, who says that anymore? Hark? It just means listen up. Listen up. 
There's a message. Something's about to happen. Guys, the Christmas season is preluded by dozens of powerful statements and events that herald that something is coming. Something is about to happen. And most anticipatory is the herald angel singing, right? The herald angels that are singing. Hark the herald angels sing. They're saying something is about to happen. But I want you to understand something. While they get a lot of attention, more accurately, Bethlehem was the grand crescendo and climax of generations of buildup and waiting for the bringer of what we're going to talk about this morning, which is comfort and joy. A huge crescendo that culminates at Jesus' advent, his arrival. Comfort and joy to a people that needed a comforter, that needed to be saved from their despair. And again, I'll say this, and hopefully this is a message that's going to echo for the next four weeks, and that is that the Christmas story doesn't start with a baby in a manger. It started in the Garden of Eden with desperation in the hearts of men and love in the heart of God. This is a very old story that has been building up for a long, long time. And in many ways and in many times, God's word heralds the coming comforter and bringer of everlasting joy. So there's a couple things that I want you to take away this morning. We're going to read our text in just a moment. We're going to read it as we go through this morning instead of kind of hitting it all at the beginning and then coming back. We're just going to do it as we go. So a couple things I want you to take away this morning as we walk through the text is that when we talk about comfort and joy, we have a coming comforter. A coming comforter. And they did too, by the way, in Isaiah. Before Jesus was made flesh, they said, the Savior is coming. The Messiah is coming. But I want you to know something. As we look back at Advent, we also look forward to Advent, do we not? We look forward to the fact that Jesus did not just come then. He is coming again. Amen? He's a coming comforter. He was then and he is now. Now, before we begin to read, again, in Isaiah 40, and by the way, we're also going to look at Isaiah 61. If you want to, like, put something back there, we'll get there sort of toward the end of our time. The context, as Chris kind of touched on a moment ago, the prophet Isaiah is given by God a word of prophecy that God's people would be exiled, that they would be put into captivity and bondage, Babylonian captivity and bondage at that, due to their own godlessness, their own sin. That's why, and you look down at verse 2 in chapter 40, it mentions the iniquity of God's people, meaning that they are going to be sent into exile, into judgment, because they've earned it. They've earned it by their own godlessness. I have a map that, uh, I, th- I think we have a map this morning. Uh, can you show that, please? I don't know if you can really read that very well, but the big green part that's sort of arching over the center of that map, it says the Babylonian Empire. I want you to see that this is a massive regime, a massive empire. And yes, they did take over the land, the, the promised land that God gave to his people, Israel. And so in doing that, again, you have the the agency of man, but also the sovereignty of God using the Babylonian Empire to punish these people and to take them into punishment of captivity. I want you to see the difference there. Big gap between Judea, which is right there on the border of the Mediterranean Sea on the left of that graph or that map, all the way to that big red dot on the right. God's people were carried away from their homes, away from their families, away from their civilization, away from their tradition, away from their heritage to a place that they did not know. And so much of Isaiah's words were confrontational up until this point, Isaiah 40. They're confrontational because what Isaiah is saying is you're getting what you deserve. God is going to carry you into exile. You're getting what you deserve. But this, his words while beginning to be words of confrontation, they quickly become words of comfort for 
the broken. Doesn't that sound like what, what you hear on Sundays? They're, they're words of confrontation. We need to be called out, as you may say, stepping on my toes a little bit. Those words of confrontation. But God's style is that he, while he confronts his people, doesn't he also comfort his people? Doesn't he always encourage his people? And this is what Isaiah is doing. Look at chapter 40 in verses 1 and 2. We'll start walking through this. We are automatically right out of the gate here. See the comfort. Isaiah writes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Notice the comfort there. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she receives from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a comforting word. He's saying comfort, comfort. Notice he says my people. He then calls them by name, Jerusalem. It's God reminding the wayward ones who they still belong to. God, who loves them and comforts them and forgives them. That's why he says your iniquity is pardoned. He still loves them. Guys, the coming comfort for them is a result of the promise of pardon and forgiveness. It is a hopeful comfort. Look at verse 3. He says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That should sound a little bit familiar because that's exactly the message you hear from Mark chapter 1 talking about John the Baptist. He is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Comfort and forgiveness. Why? Because his word is reliable. Notice it says a voice cries out. And then it says in verse 6, a voice says, look here in verses 6 through 8. He says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but, listen to this, the word of our God will stand forever. There's a metaphor there that the the author, Isaiah, is sort of throwing in here. The metaphor is that all flesh, meaning people, are like grass and flowers. It's fall and kind of transitioning into winter right now. And if you go and look at the grass outside, isn't it pretty? No, it's not pretty. What about the flowers? Aren't they lovely? No, there's none, right? Because what happens to grass and flowers in the winter? They wither and they fade. And next fall, after it has now been replaced and there'll be new grass and new flowers, what's going to happen next November? They're going to die too. Man, I'm just the bearer of good news, aren't I? Eden, our our three-year-old, will go outside from time to time, and she'll come back in with a a weed that she calls a flower. That's kind of a good metaphor for her personality, to be honest with you. That just hit me. She's a flower, but also sometimes she's a little weed. I think that's us all, isn't it? Man, I didn't expect that. That just kind of hit out of nowhere. Usually that's dangerous whenever something just hits out of nowhere, but there it is. She picks these little weeds that she calls flowers because they're yellow and they kind of have a little thing going on. And she brings them in and says, Daddy, I brought you a flower. I know. I know. And so I'm like, ooh, this is pretty. She's like, smell it. I'm like, "Mm, that weed smells good, right? No, it doesn't. So I'm like, thank you so much for this. And then I'll just kind of set it aside. And she said, keep it. Said, okay, baby. And she quickly forgets about it. Thank the Lord. But what happens to that weed whenever she brings it inside? Does it still live? No, it it withers, right? It fades. And the reason why I say that is because this is the metaphor that the word of people is. The the word of people is not reliable. It's flimsy. The word of people withers. It fades. But God's word is juxtaposed with that. While people's word fades and it's flimsy and it withers, what's God's word like? No, it remains forever, right? God promises something. You know what's going to happen? It's going to happen. 
When, God's pro- when God promises something to his people, it is certain. It is forever. It is hopeful. The first Christmas and this chapter, Isaiah 40, can perhaps be best summarized with one word, and it's that word, the word of hope. See, while Israel was captive to Babylon and God would bring rescue physically, apart from Christ, we as the church have a greater bondage, and it's not an empire. The bondage that we have is the bondage to the power of and the penalty of for our sin. And in Christ, God has brought us a greater rescue. That's the good news of the gospel. From long lay the world in sin and error pining to a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Amen? We'll sing that one another Sunday, O Holy Night. Isaiah's hopeful words were true of God rescuing his people from Babylon then, but guys, they are more profoundly applied to God rescuing his people from sin centuries later in the advent of Jesus. A hopeless world we live in. A world that's, you know, it's it's December and you turn on the TV and everything is merry and bright, but you go out into the world and it's not. The world is full of pain and sorrow and homelessness and barrenness and weakness and cancer and bitterness and anger and division. And those commercials you see about all the merry and bright, you go on Black Friday and people are at war with one another fighting over the things that are supposed to bring them joy because the world is deeply fractured. And all of those things are results of the fallenness of this world. Guys, in Christmas, we look back and see that God has begun a new work in Jesus. But we also, with hopeful eyes, look forward and see that God's comforting work is not finished. But one day he will be. Amen? It's that anonymous quote that I read from some time ago. It's, in the end, everything will be okay. And if things aren't okay, then it's not the end. A helpful reminder. Guys, we can take comfort now because the comforter has come before, but more importantly, because he's going to come again. We're going to look at a verse in a few moments that's going to really enrich that. I say all that to say, Advent, which we're celebrating here, Advent does look backwards. Right? It looks backwards to Christmas, the first Christmas. But so importantly is that when we celebrate Advent, we're not just looking back into a courageous and victorious past we're looking forward into a hopeful and victorious future. And that's comforting, right? The second thing is the reason we can have that comfort, and that is that we have a sure shepherd. We have a sure shepherd. The message is sure because of the one who has assured it. <clears throat> As a result, it should be proclaimed from the place where the most people would hear it. We talked about go tell it on the mountain. In their context, that's exactly what they would do. They, they wanted somebody to hear a lot of things. You know where they went? They went to a high place, and they proclaimed that thing from a high place. We're going to see this in verse 9. Hey, before we read verse 9, can somebody turn on the AC in here? It's warm. That fan's supposed to be running. It's not running. Can somebody do that? Thank you. Don't be distracted. Don't, I didn't call attention to that. We're just going to act like it didn't even happen. I know I'm wearing a sweatshirt, but hey, forget about it. All right, let's look at verse 9. It says, go on up to a high mountain. We're going to see a word here, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. 
say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. What's happening is God is calling his people to herald good news, meaning there's good news to herald. Again, these people are going to go into captivity and bondage, and yet he's saying there's a message that's coming that's going to restore you. Look at verses 10 and 11. I love this. There's three things that are said about God here that I want you to see. He says, behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Who rules? What kind of person rules? A king, right? A king rules. He says his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, meaning he is a giver of gifts. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. So you have a king, a giver of gifts, and a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is for Israel first. Remember, we can easily read this and think, what am I supposed to take out of this? First, we got to see what they were supposed to take out of this. And what they would take from this is that God is three things. He is giving kingly deliverance. He is bringing a generous gift, and he is a loving shepherd. He's bringing kingly deliverance. He's bringing a generous gift, and he is a loving shepherd. And in Isaiah's context, God's people were like wandering sheep needing their shepherd king with power and love to deliver them from the hand of their enemies. I want you to hear this. What was true of Israel on the small scale is true of humanity and of you and me on the large scale. And that is this profound reality, that without our shepherd king, we are distant from God, brokenhearted. We are captives of our sin, imprisoned to our transgressions against God, mourning our desperation, hopeless, without the ability to work our way into favor with God. Not eternal life that John three sixteen talks about, but without that, eternal perishing, that the wages of sin is death. And it is in this gut-wrenching silence, bad news, that we hear the herald of good news, that he is coming in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. In light of that, hear this from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It says this, the Spirit of the Lord, this is the servant talking, this is, this is the voice of the Christ that is to come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Guys, the message is sure because of the one who has assured it, and that is that Jesus is coming. It was true then, and it's true now. We know it's Christ because he says the Spirit is on him. We think, well, that's true of a lot of people. Well, it's true of Jesus at his baptism. What happened to Jesus' baptism? He came up out of the waters. What does it say? That the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. A very visceral picture that the Spirit of God is on Jesus in a special way. It says he'll bring good news to the poor. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know I love that verse? Because it means that when we are poor, we are made rich because of the gospel of Christ. He says he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, meaning put them back together. Oh, I love this verse. It's in the very end of your Bible, Revelation 21, 4. Listen, man, if there's a memorization verse, this is it. He will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for, for the former things have passed away. Guys, some of you guys in this room, your life is full of tears in your eyes. Your life is full of death even, of mourning, of crying, of pain. And yet there's coming a day of Advent when those tears will be wiped away, or that pain will be no more, that death will be put to bed. Amen? In other words, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. And at one point or another, every person in this room fits that description. That Jesus is coming, our comforter, our shepherd. He also says he proclaims liberty to the captives. I love the word liberty. It is the perfect contrast with the word captive or captivity. Liberty and captivity don't go together. Captivity is bondage. It's being shackled. Liberty is freedom. It's being liberated. John 8, 36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Is anybody here made free because of the work of Jesus? Amen. Liberty to the captives. While sin put chains on us, Jesus broke the chains. He says he's going to bring the vengeance of our God. Maybe that's a weird thing to think about, the vengeance of our God. Here's what it means, though. It means the thing that sort of Put a, put a wrench in Jesus, in God's plan, being sin and death. What's going to happen is that God is going to appear and sin and death will be emptied of their power. Isaiah 25, 8 says, he will swallow up death forever. Amen? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I love that it says the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. That Jesus will say, you are the greatest enemy and you're done. Victory. He's going to comfort the mourners from sorrow of bondage to the celebration of broken chains. Why? Because we have a sure shepherd. He's certain. He called himself a shepherd in John 10. He called himself the good shepherd, and we have a good shepherd. John 10, verses 11, 17, and 18 say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He he shows himself death for their sake, in other words. For this reason, the Father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Don't miss that last part. No one takes it from me. But I lay it, lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. In other words, he is born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. How could we just sing those words, bored? Because that is the power of Christ in us. Born that men no more may die? Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. I love what we sang. I don't have this part written down. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Light and life. What are the opposite of those things? Darkness and death. Jesus entered into our darkness and death, and he brought the opposite. He lit up the darkness, and he cured the problem of death, that we may have eternal life. Man, there is the gospel written all over Christmas, you guys. The message is sure because of the one who has assured it but also because the first advent has confirmed it. The grave is empty, Jesus reigns, and we long for a second coming, a second advent. Guys, again, we celebrate advent while also longing for the second advent. In other words, we long for comfort and joy. They did too, you know. And in a sense, Jesus brought that, did he not? Jesus brought comfort and joy. 
But at the same time, even though you may have received Christ and you may have given your life to him and, and, and known him as Savior and Lord, do you always have comfort? Do you always have joy? Maybe a bit of a trick question. Deep within, absolutely. Because of the work of Jesus, we have everlasting comfort, everlasting joy. Even in the darkest of pits, we can find the light of life. However, everyone in this room has at some point in your life been discomforted, even knowing Jesus. Everyone in this room has at some point found despair, even though you have been given the joy of eternal life already, but not yet at the same time. We long for it even though we have taken hold of it. Just speaking sober-mindedly, Christmas is such a confusing season. <clears throat> I can't back this up with statistics, but it seems like, you know, the human experience is like this, ups and downs and highs and lows, but it seems like Christmas sort of, the, the, that wave intensifies. You have great highs. It's like, man, I'm so thankful. I'm so, this is great. Like, I get to be around my entire family. And then they leave. You're like, I'm so lonely. And then you're given, or you, you get the things that you're like, I, I get to have this food processor. <laughs> this is going to make my life so much easier. And then you're like, no, it's not. My life is still it's full of stress. The waves are intensified, it seems like. Very high highs, but very low lows. You know, even, even diagnoses hurt worse in December. Loss hurts worse in December. Because every year you're reminded that that person's not around the table anymore. My dad almost wasn't. You know, you may be in a season of hurt, of loneliness, of loss, or depression. You may be drowning in stress, or worry, or financial woes, and this is not a good time for that, or debt. Maybe it's just deep-seated feelings of insecurity or lack of value or self-worth. And you're longing for God to be who he says he is. God, you said you're a comforter. Do you not see this? And while he certainly is a very present help in time of need, we also long for the day that he will return and free us from the daily battle with sin. And when we read verses about him wiping away every tear, guys, I long for that day. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. How great does that sound? Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guys, as much as Christmas is the season of celebration of the past, it is the season of comfort and hope in the future. You may be in a season where you're longing for comfort. You may be in a season where you're longing for joy. I just want you to know you're not alone in that. You get good company. King David was desperate for joy when he found himself in the pit of Psalm 51, having sinned bigly. Psalm 51, verse 12 says, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
meaning it's gone. God restored to me the joy of his, no, meaning I know it's there. I know it's supposed to be there, but it's not there. God restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Guys, I want you to hear something. If that's you this morning, please listen. It is the Godward acknowledgement that you are desperate for that joy that sets you on the course to receive that joy. I'm going to say that again. It is the Godward acknowledgement that you are desperate for it that sets you on the course to receive it. God wants from you, not the big and robust sacrifices. David says the same thing in Psalm 51. You know what he asked for? A broken and contrite heart. You will not despise, O God. And he can grant you joy, not just because he's the good shepherd, but because to him, all things submit to this good shepherd. Back in, in, in Isaiah 40, I want to read a few more verses. I'm just going to read them all and, and let these verses just kind of hit us right in the forehead. Verse 12, Isaiah 40, 12 through 4. I'm just going to just, I'll read the number. Who has measured the waters of the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. Verse 18 then says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Look down to verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Church, listen to me, please. There is no enemy, no culture movement, no peer, no government that can rival the almighty God. There is no depression too mighty for him to overcome with peace, no grief too deep for him to restore your joy, no worry too crippling for him to give you a renewed sense of trust. He knows no rival. He knows no equal. He's God. And we wait for him. We wait for him. The last verse in this chapter says, Those, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. If you need that today, then I want you to take this home with you. I want you with eyes of faith to pray to God and say, God, I know what your word says about you is true, and I'm telling you now, I'm giving it to you, and I'm waiting for you. God, I believe that what your word says about you is true. I'm telling you now, I'm giving it to you, and I'm waiting for you. That doesn't mean, hello, where are you at? Waiting is a matter of trust. It's saying, God, in the midst of the chaos, I'm saying, I'm giving it to you. And your word says, put his character on the line. Your word says that you will renew my strength. Your word says that you'll mount me up, that I'll run and not be weary, that I'll walk and not faint. God, prove yourself to be who you say you are. A prayer of faith. He will answer it. The heralds. 
The last verse I want to read is from Isaiah 61. Sorry to make you flip back and forth. I want to end with the last verse of Isaiah 61. It says this, verse 11. I'll let you get there. I do want you to put your eyes on this one. Verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Isaiah was a very nationalist book. It was written for one nation. It's written for God's people, Judah, really, and maybe you could add Israel to that, but mainly this is written for Judah. And yet here we see a very global good news message. This is not about a nation, at least not a geographical one. This is about a different nation, the nation called the church. What is God going to do? He's going to cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Who's going to do that? That's us, y'all. You will go and be my witnesses, therefore, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. Guys, that's our mission. The only herald we're talking about is not Isaiah. We are the heralds of good news. We are the heralds of good news who take the message so that people will not be in despair and discomfort, so that they instead can cry out with righteousness and praise, God, you are like no other. Praise be to the name of the Lord. We herald the good news to the nations <clears throat> as recipients of that good news. I mentioned a moment ago that their herald, their assignment was to go to a mountain, right? Why? So that people would hear it. Go to the mountain. Where do you go? Where do you go? Where can you ensure that people will hear the gospel message? You may not be a herald on a mountain, but will you be a herald in your home? Will you be a herald to your peers? Will you make it clear who the king and shepherd is of your heart, who has given you comfort and joy? I want you to do something this year, this December. When you're watching TV or movies or whatever, there's commercials, ads on YouTube, whatever it may be, I want you to listen for the word joy. Listen for the word joy. Marketers love that word, especially with car commercials. Jewelry commercials. You want to give your wife the gift of joy this Christmas? Go down to the diamond store and buy her a big fat diamond ring. Please, man. Please. It's a sham. That big red bow on that Mercedes, it ain't got it. It's a pretty car, though. Listen for that word joy. It don't matter what you buy, though, it won't be found. Not in those things, at least. I want you to be reminded, church, that comfort and joy are found in nowhere else save in the good news work of Christ our Savior. And you may be here today totally, desperately seeking hope and joy in this life. And you've tried it all. Maybe you've looked for it in the bottom of a bottle. Maybe you've looked for it in addiction, drugs, maybe not something so severe. Maybe you've just looked for it in pursuing the American dream, the bottom dollar of the job, filling the home with kids, pets, 
success, and yet all of it has left you lacking. There's a reason for that. Because when God made you, he put a place in your heart that only God could ultimately satisfy. That's the joy space. And only God can fill and ultimately satisfy the joy space. And you may be here today because you're seeking hope and joy in this life, and it has only left you feeling hollow. But I want to tell you something today. The same Jesus that was heralded in Isaiah will one day come again. And when he comes, you can see him not as the stranger. You can see him as the shepherd king. Today, will you lay down your life so that you may take it up anew, that you'll find that these things in this life will only find you crippled in anguish and discomfort, lacking true, genuine hope. But in Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song, our cornerstone, our solid ground, firm to the fiercest drought and storm. In Christ alone, our hope is found.